Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 121. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggler Jeff Taveja. Before I talk to Jeff, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, get ready. Drop everything. Here comes Jeff Tavagia. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 121. My very special guest, Jeff Tavaja. Did, did I say that right? I said that terrible, didn't I? No, we rehearsed it. Never Tavaja. Did. No, you get one more try and you're out and I'm off. Tavaja. You got it. I'll stay. All right, I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over. Okay. Tav- <laughs> it was Tav- a funny beginning. Tavaja. Okay. Oh, we'll, Tav- we'll just stick with that. I like it. Okay, what do we care? Ladies and yeah. gentlemen, I'm talking to Jeff. Tavaja. Tavaja. It's been the bane of my existence my entire career, that last name. You know, my whole life, because I've known, I've known about you. Like, I don't think we've ever met, or if we've met, maybe it was once at a festival like 30 years ago or something. Well, yeah, and I, I'll bring that up later if you'd like. Sure. I, I remember it very clearly. I'm sorry that you don't, but I do. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. But, uh, yeah, Tavaja's been uh, a, a difficult name to remember. And for a short period, I had changed it because... Uh, it, people were having such a hard time introducing me, so for a while I was going by Jeff Harris. Oh, interesting. It turned out to be no, it wasn't at all because it was so plain, plain and bland that they really couldn't remember that at all. They completely <laughs> drew a blank, so they begged me to go back to the because it was something they had to focus on and it sounded more interesting. So, well, once you know it, but for my whole, exactly. my, my whole career, you have been Jeff Tavagia. Tavagia, yes. <laughs> so, so Jeff. <laughs> Tavasia. Tavasia, yes. All right, good. We got that out of the way. Thanks for the podcast. Good night. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> enjoy, the, enjoy the shrimp. Enjoy the shrimp, yes. Well, Jeff, this is exciting for me because like, there's there are very few jugglers who go back to when I started, and I'm pretty sure you were a professional before me. So what, so what year did you start as a uh, professional? Because I remember hearing I about you, uh, that you had gone to clown college. Let's go even before Nate. that. Let's get even before that. Let's have the okay. whole Jeff Tavaja. 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 Oh, I, I got it. I got it. The Jeff Tavaja story. Uh, where were you born and what did your parents do? Let's go all the way okay. back to the beginning. Well, back before I was Jeff Tavaja, I was a kid known as Jeff Tavaja. No, I was Jeff Tavaja. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, my father was a Chicago police officer. Um, and my mother, she was, when I was born, she was a housewife and a mother, but then after that, she had several, uh, working jobs, you know, as mothers do, she had been a dental hygienist and uh, all different kinds of places, things in the medical care. And when she rounded out her career, she was actually an addiction counselor. So no furthest thing could be from show business at all, a police officer and an addictions counselor. And um, I'm hearing some of the Chicago now, now that you say it, I'm hearing some of the Chicago. Chicago. Accent, Chicago. Yeah. Well, it, Chicago was a big benefit for being involved in uh, show business, and particularly my first interest was magic uh, and, and juggling, because I'm sure you know that there's just so many uh, jugglers that come from that area, and it was a big magic community. So uh, my first interest was uh, at, at the library. My mother took me, I was probably seven or eight years old, to the Chicago Public Library, and the first book I took out was about Harry Houdini. Um, fell in love with magic, and... By chance, the magic the library had a magic club, and an eight year old kid joined the magic club, and I just was in love with it. And we did 
stores around all of Chicago and performed at other libraries. There were about 10 of us kids in it, and we'd all do about 10-minute spots, and we'd do about an hour-long show. And it felt like we were on tour. We are going around in here. I'm this little kid. I had a suitcase and a cape, and my stage name was Mr. Jeffrey. But it was spelled with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. Mr. Jeffrey with his uh, Oxitrix. And uh, that, that was the beginning. Um, yeah, what a perfect way to start. It sounds like it sounds like perfectly supported a group of people, kids your age at the libraries doing a little tour. Boy, that sounds ideal. It was. It was absolutely amazing. It was so much fun. And through the books and through the Magic Club and all of us talking about this this magic all the time, I was completely absorbed in it and just completely fell in love with show business. The idea of being an entertainer, uh, traveling as a performer. Um, it just, it sparked my imagination and I just, it, it just immediately grabbed me and I knew it was going to be my future. And how about that Harry Houdini? As a kid, oh. wasn't he interesting to, to find out there was somebody like a Harry Houdini in the world? Oh, in the Tony Curtis movie about him, yeah. you know, to, to see that on TV. And, uh, then I got a chance to go see, uh, Harry Blackstone Jr. came live to Chicago with his big Circus of Illusions show that was just absolutely blew my mind. Uh, I think I was about 12 years old then. Doug Henning came a couple times when he was huge and uh, went and saw that show live. So, I mean, seeing all these things and being exposed to all this stuff just really lit me on fire. Um, I remember reading that, that Houdini had trained himself to pick up uh, pins and needles with his toes. You know, like weird no. things like that. I'm like, that's my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I never heard that one. But, uh, yeah, it, it just, uh, it, what really grabbed me, though, was there was one day when we were getting ready for one of these shows uh, from the Magic Club, and me and one of the other kids who walked across the street to the drugstore, and we were looking for props, I think decks of cards or something to make props with. And he reached into a basket and pulled out three baseballs and juggled them. And I still remember the excitement I felt, and it really looked like real magic to me. And I had, I had seen juggling before, and honestly, the first time I saw it on TV, I hated it because I, so, I was so into magic. I think that's really interesting that it became my life. But I, I was so bored by it. And I, I, it was a circus-style juggler on Bozo Circus. And I wanted to see him pull a rabbit out of a hat or silks to come out. It, it just wasn't doing it for me. But when I saw this juggling live, and I think it was the combination of that he was doing it right in front of me. And it seemed so rebellious that he was doing it in a store, that he had picked them up out of a thing and doing it. You know, you're supposed to be shopping in a store. <laughs> and here's this guy's juggling. So, and, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years old. So, I, you know, I begged him to teach me how to do it. And uh, I think I learned that day how to do three balls and uh, discovered I kind of had a knack for it. And I think my fate was sealed. Yeah. I mean, seeing, mud, seeing juggling on TV, for some reason, kind of flattens it. Yes. And when you see it right in front of you, you're like, it's like a moving sculpture right in front of your eyes. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. But I will say, here's, okay, my shameless little uh, sucking up to you and thanking you for having me on your podcast. Okay. Uh, you you and, and Barry were not uh, flat at all on TV. I still remember very clearly seeing you on Carson. And to this day, one of my all-time favorite comedy bits is you saying, concentrate, concentrate. <laughs> I just think that was one of the most brilliant bits. And when he tells you to shut up, I, I just every time laugh out loud. Just brilliant. I think that's the thing that, like, for, for me and Barry, for us, it was always about the characters and the comedy. And uh, We had a thing with uh, from Dick Franco years ago that was pretty interesting, where he said, uh, come out on stage and show that you're jugglers first, and then, you know, come out and do some juggling, and then get into your comedy. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so the first couple of years of our career, that's what we did. But then it, it took a while for us to realize, oh, no, we're comedians first who juggle. 
So right. I think that's why how we came across good on TV because we kind of came up in the comedy boom, and we were really, really concerned with getting the laughs per minute, the same way the stand-ups, stand-ups were. Like we want to get the same amount of laughter. So we were more focused on being comedians who juggled. Right. Maybe that's why right. we came across better than just a circus juggler. Probably, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I feel the same kind of way. I, I more ease into the, the juggling and get them to like me first. And then they're far more forgiving because I found that if you come out as a straight, flashy circus juggler, they're, right away the wall comes up and they're like, okay, impress us. This guy thinks he's cool. Where, as if you go out and let them get to know you first, then you can do whatever you want. Yeah, that's what worked for us. I mean, it took us a while. We used to come out with like a two-minute club routine to music. And if it went perfect, it kind of, it was good. It kind of created some energy and we could kind of, you know, play with that. But if we had a couple drops or they weren't oh. into it, it really, yeah. it really was dead. So. And, and then you got to win them back. You got to spend the whole next 20 minutes getting them back. And uh, I'll start my second show with a music routine because now they already know me. Yeah. They, you know, they, they've seen the first show. So the second, then, then I feel free with it. And I also found too, that coming out cold without comedy is nerve wracking. Yeah. If you're trying to, you know, it's it just, they're staring you down and they have that attitude of impress us. Whereas if you can make some jokes and they realize you're not taking yourself too seriously, it just it sets it up much better. Yeah. I guess you have to decide, am I a comedian who juggles or am I, am I a, a juggler who does some comedy? I've never made the decision. I think most are jugglers who do some comedy because I think they got into it because they really love the juggling and then realized, oh, I got to add some comedy and bulk this out to be able to do it professionally, but they came from the juggling first. And I definitely came from the comedy first. The way I got into it was, I was very fortunate because I didn't, of course, foresee what my career would end up being. But at the same time that I'm falling in love with with magic and juggling, I'm also being exposed to the Marx Brothers and uh, W.C. Fields and Evan Costello on TV. And at the same time, Norm Crosby's comedy shops on TV make me laughs on TV. So I'm staying up late at night to watch all these TV shows and I'm in love with stand-up comedy. I'm in love with these old uh, vaudeville comedians on, on, in the movies. I'm developing a love for comedy at the same time. What a great combination. That, that's, the perfect, that's the perfect comedy juggler. I love comedy and I love juggling. Exactly. It's like, it's like chocolate and peanut butter, right? Put them together. Correct, correct. And I had never thought about putting it together. I just had all these loves. And then my grandmother takes me to see the circus, Ringling Brothers Circus, and absolutely blows my mind. I, and in the program, they had a whole thing about clown college. Right. It sparked my imagination and that you could possibly run away and join the circus if you got into it. And they had this big layout of all these guys juggling and learning how to take falls and to, to do build props and do all these gags. And I was right then, I said, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to clown college as soon as I get out of high school. Nice. And everything was focused on that from that point out i just i just practiced like crazy i still was doing magic still was doing juggling and another big turning point for me came in um i can't remember the year but i went to see david copperfield in chicago and to start out his second half of the show after the intermission they had a juggler come out oh okay and it was chris blitz it was before he was a stand-up comedian like he is now yeah. you know chris yeah. bless you of course he's famous for going viral with the beatles routine at that time he was doing i think it was about a 15 minute act there was no talking at all no comedy and it was all strictly visual and he had uh, lights surrounding him a whole rig set up on yeah. stands and on the floor and he controlled them with his feet and he juggled to the who and to the beatles of course you know, black lights, strobe lights, and all this stuff combined. And that day I said, that's it. Selling all the magic props. I'm definitely going to be a juggler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting story because 
people don't know, he's a very good stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. Very good comedian. And he ends now with that Beatles thing, standing ovation, big time. But uh, for a while, he was just touring with rock, like Michael Jackson, Victory Tour. And it was all just balls with the lighting effects that he was triggering with his feet. Yeah. And I uh, luckily got to work with him many years later on a ship. And I knew he was coming on board. I had been on already the week before. And the first day I was up in the gym on the treadmill. And who happens to be on the treadmill next to me? It's him. So I startled him right away by saying, you're Chris Bliss. And he was like, dude, how would anybody even know who I am recognize me? And so I tell him the story and he knew that exact show because it was a one-off thing that he happened to do. And then we became friends, had a few meals together and I was bringing up his routine to him. And I was asking him about some, he juggled some strange scarves that were these long pieces of, um, oh, I forget the name of them now. And they had smaller parts attached to them and he juggled them in the black light and he was explaining it to me. And then he ended up mailing them in the mail. Nice. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a very, very good guy. It was really super cool to, to meet him. Yeah, super good guy. And it's cool, too, because some jugglers get to perform with him because basically he's doing, you know, 90% stand-up and just ending with that routine. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, it was, it's, it was very exciting, yeah, kind of full circle. Yeah, we did a couple of shows with him and got to play some golf and hang out. And super good guy, nice guy, and uh, deserves all the success he had. And it shows from that video a very, a very important lesson other jugglers can learn about why that video was successful, right? That it wasn't the juggling. Like, why has that been the video that's been the most successful all these years later that's still the most successful? Because it's from his heart. It's the passion and it's real. I mean, there's there's emotion to it, there's feeling to it, and it's entertaining. It's almost like a perfect routine, right? I always think of it as a visual representation of the music. Like, he's visually represent, representing what we're hearing. Yes. Repeating the chorus, and it's... You know, the, the music is so perfect, and that magic has never been captured again, really, uh, at least on video. It has. Like I said, that's why I wanted to get into it, because I wanted to do that. And, of course, it's next to impossible. I mean, he just had the neck for, to, to nail it. You know what I mean? It was, uh, yeah, just incredible. But I, I thank him, and I owe a lot to him, because it definitely helped me make it a choice of which direction I wanted to go in. And I think it's good for junglers to see these big magic shows. Because I remember I saw Blackstone Jr. and, and Doug Henning in these shows. And, and David Copperfield, it's definitely a different level of entertainment than the juggler can provide. Right. And it's good to experience that and see, okay, why is magic more popular than juggling? Good okay, point. this is why. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I got to tell you, I do have a story about when uh, Blackstone Jr. came to town. So uh, again, I was, I think, probably 12 years old. And I went, it was at the Studebaker Theater in Chicago. And what it, it was just, a, for those who haven't seen it, amazing spectacle of a show. Uh, he even brought his own main, main curtain that would, had all these flames that went up to the ceiling. And there was just this mystique. It was just incredible, this, this grand illusion show. And in the middle, he did the dancing handkerchief routine. And he did it with a borrowed handkerchief from the audience. So I got tickets to go back and see him a week later again, because I love the show so much. And I... The last minute, I got some inspiration. I thought, wow, you know, if I brought a handkerchief yeah. and I got him to pick my handkerchief, he'd bring me up on stage and I'd get to be on stage with Eric Blackstone Jr. So <laughs> right. yeah. just before we left, I asked my dad for a handkerchief and uh, he's digging around and he finds one. But it's a handkerchief that uh, it's not solid white. It had maroon stripes on it. Mm. And I'm 12 years old. I don't know any better. So, OK, cool. So <laughs> this, here comes the show. I'm that kid, you know, he doesn't have the words out of my mouth. I now need a gentleman's white hair, hair, hair. <laughs> Running down the aisle with the handkerchief. 
and I get down there, and as I'm holding it out to him, I can see his fa- in his face something going on. Oh, right. But he handles it super cool. He just kind of looks at me, and he says, ah, first of all, young man, I asked for a gentleman's white handkerchief. <laughs> you are but a small boy. Oh, funny. Secondly, I asked for a clean white handkerchief. He pretended like it was stuck together and wouldn't unfold. Right, right, right. Oh, funny. Yeah, okay. And thirdly, I asked for a white handkerchief, and this clearly has maroon stripes. So I'm sorry, young man, I cannot use your handkerchief. And he hands it back to me and sends me back to my seat with my head down like this Uh, in front of – yeah, that was it. cool part about that story is afterwards, he would come out in the theater and sign everybody's programs. Right. And I waited, and when he signed my program, he looked at me and he remembered, and he said, hey, kid, I'm sorry about that handkerchief, but it wouldn't have matched my dupes, and he winked at me. Ah, class and, fun, uh, man. Yeah, and, and to be let in on the, you know, at 12 years old and have them remember me and to yeah. say that, that always stuck with me. Yeah, gracious. And the only time I was ever brought on stage, it wasn't quite as good. It was a hypnotism show, and I got to be a little teapot. <laughs> like, I'm a little teapot, short and oh. stout, you know. And I kept, no, God, no, this was, this was when I was 10 years old or something, and I still remember this one bench, this one hypnotist. Uh, might have been on a ship, and his big secret was he would lean in and tell the person, "Just do what I tell you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! You know, it's funny. I I don't do any audience participation at all. Oh, weird. And I never have. Okay. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never been comfortable with it. Once in a while, if there's an exciting kid, I'll bring him up and I'll do right, the right. you know spin the ball and put it on his finger. But as as a rule, I generally just don't use oh, it, which okay. actually worked to my advantage after the pandemic because I yeah. said right away to my agent, tell everybody I don't use audience participation because that, that was banned for a while after right, the right, pandemic. Right, yeah. When I watch these hypnotists and their whole show relies on getting 10 to 20 people from the audience that are going to participate and go along with it, it just would drive me crazy. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, you know, worrying about if am I going to get duds or am I going to get, you know, good volunteers or I just hate the uncertainty of it. I don't, I hate not knowing what's going to happen. That's funny because on cruises, bringing up volunteers is a good way to fill up time. You know, and and, and the audience really loves it. I know it's yeah. the one thing that I, I, I know that I lack because people love to see themselves on stage. But what I know in my heart of hearts, I've seen shows where the, the assistant that they bring out of the audience puts the show over the top. They're just the most perfect person. And I know I would be on cloud nine from that. And then next week I would pick someone who's not as funny as that or as good. And I would hate that person for not being as good as last week's person. So... I find it better to just stay away from it. Hey, you got to know, right? You got to know what's right for you. Even though you yeah. see you see it being done, you see it working, you're like, I just, that's, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to do it. I'm not comfortable doing it. And I'm not. So good for you. Yeah, good for Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, speaking of Chicago, yes. I'd be remiss without mentioning a very important juggler to me. Hopefully he was important to you. Did you have an interaction with Paul Bachman? Yeah, Paul Bachman. I was going to bring that up. Uh, As luck would have it, again, when I was a kid, uh, one of the gigs we did from the Library Magic Club was at a mall in Chicago called Ford City where they had a stage set up. I can't remember the occasion, but it was a week-long deal, and the library sent us over there to do shows during the day. And Paul turned out to be one of the paid entertainers that was on that same stage. So that was the first time I met him. He also was very close friends with some other friends that I had there. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with another, um, uh, more of a variety artist, juggler, balancer named Bob Hunt. Biker Bobby Hunt. Biker Bobby Hunt, yeah. <laughs> Circus boy, of course. Yeah, when I, I was nine and he was 12, we did our first show together. Yeah. And uh, his father was very interest, instrumental in teaching me a lot of stuff. And 
his father and Paul Bachman were very close. So there was a whole little community there. And of course, back in those days before YouTube, those VHS tapes of jugglers were just precious. Yeah. And Paul had the ultimate collection. And I would always go over to his house. He'd show me, turn me on to Dick Franco. I was another huge influence on me. Ignatoff, Love, Francis Brunn, all these. And he let me copy his videotapes. I even remember, too, he had on one VHS, there was an old, uh, a lot of footage of you in a gymnasium doing some great three ball stuff, hat routine, uh, great stuff with like a top hat, everything. And um, yeah, he, he came out to see us at a, a TV thing we did. Was that something he filmed? Because uh, he, we, we, we were good friends with Paul. He'd come out and visit us quite a bit at different uh, events. And boy, there's some crazy Paul Bachman stories. But that's a... <laughs> he was just, yeah, he was the best. I mean, he just really, uh, helped. if I hadn't met him, I don't know if I would have been able to get into it as well as I did and go as far as I did because he exposed me to so much and let me really know what was out there. And he just knew everything there was about juggling. Like, Danny... That Jeff Tavagia, he's a monster. He's a monster. He's he's, he's, he's mutaneous. He's, he's, he's mutaneous with his juggling. <laughs> well, that wasn't a very good Paul Bachman impression, but he was. Yeah, no, no, it sounded just like him. He was the best. I loved yeah. him. I absolutely loved him. Yeah. So let's let's get this pick it back up at where yes. so you're in high school. You're doing the magic. You're doing the juggling. Uh, you decide to go to clown college. Let's get to clown college and let me know. Uh, did you have to audition? Did you send? How did you how did you get into clown college? Yeah, so, okay, so now we'll get back on Bob Hunt again, Biker okay. Bobby Hunt. So yeah. he, he went to clown college. I had already had this dream before. I, I knew that he was going to go, but he went, I think, three years before I did. Okay. And because I was close with his father also, during the off-season, Bob had come home and after clown college, showed me all the pictures, told me everything about clown college. And then his father was going to drive him from Chicago back to Venice, Florida, where the circus winter quarters was, uh, to start the season. And they invited me to go along on that trip. Perfect. So I actually got to go down there. And as I, I think I was in my junior junior year of high school. So I still had another year before I was even eligible to do it. Anyway, here I am. I'm at the circus now and I know somebody and I got involved and I get to see the circus train and meet all the other clowns. And it was like uh, really behind the scenes fake, you know, and it, it was just amazing access. We were there for the opening night of his season on the Red Show. And in the stands, Irvin Feld, who was the producer of the circus, was in the stands. So I ran up to him and I said, oh, Mr. <laughs> Feld, yeah, I, I, I want to go to your clown college. And he said, oh, really? He says, OK, well, here's what you do when you get the application. There's a part that says, do you know anybody who works in the circus? And I want you to put down my name. How about that? When the application comes in, I'll remember you and I'll make sure I can help you out. And I was, oh, my gosh, it was incredible. <laughs> And sure enough, once uh, the application process came up, my first phone interview, how do you know Irvin Phil? You know, they did very skeptical. And I told them the story and they laughed. And um, yeah, it was, uh, I auditioned twice, actually. I auditioned once in Oklahoma City. This was another tri trip to visit Bob. And then when the circus came to Chicago, uh, I auditioned there again. Uh, I didn't want to take any chances. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got in. And I did. It's a But you didn't go like, Mr. Feld, I have this handkerchief. That wasn't part of the story. <laughs> He said, yes, but it's, it's a small boy's handkerchief. Well, that was nice, though. That was nice of him to give you that little uh, that little uh, step up. It was very nice. Very, very nice. Yeah, I've been very fortunate with a lot of a lot of great people just offering help and helping me out. And I'm sure I, I bugged the crap out of so many people, too, because I, I learned early on to just uh, find out all the people who were doing what you want to do and, and bend their ears and, and pick their brains and uh, figure out the, the, the best route. And I found, ran into so many people that were just super, super helpful. And how long is the program? So you get into the program. Is it a couple of months? I'm not quite sure how long is it. Yes, it's well, it doesn't exist anymore. But at yeah. the time, yeah, it was two and a half months. And 
Real quick uh, breakdown of the applicants. This was all, I don't know if it's propaganda or true, but the, it was apparently 6,000 applicants every year, and they only accepted 40 or 50 students maximum. Right. And then out of those 40 or 50, from the graduation performance, they would decide who would actually get jobs to tour with the show. And it depended each year on how many spots were available because not everybody would leave at the end of the year. And my year, I think they hired 11 or 12 of us. So from 6,000 down to 12 people was, uh, I kind of took that as like a little, little bit of a badge, you know, I was, I was proud of that. I toured with them for four years after that. I did three years on the, on the red show. And then I, their first ever tour of Japan, I went on to the gold unit for six months in Japan. And did you have a, a juggling instructor in the clown college? I did. Do you remember a guy named Harry Berman? No. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Harry. <laughs> Harry Berman was a, that's okay. He was a fantastic, he's, he's no longer with us, but he was uh, also a college uh, graduate. He went on to cruise ships also after uh, touring with the circus, but he was a phenomenal technical juggler and uh, just all around good guy. Another guy that kind of took me under his wing. What was his name? And uh, showed, showed me the ropes. Harry Berman, David Berman also he went back. Harry David no, Berman. No, never, 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 never crossed my, my knowledge, David Berman, Harry Berman. I don't know. Yeah. So it's two and a half months, and you learn everything, right? You learn the makeup, the, the clown skits, the juggling. It was like 12 hours a day. We had to be there for warm-ups at 8 a.m. in the morning, and we'd do calisthenics, and then we'd go from one class to the next. They even taught us how to sew, how to make our own costumes, uh, carpentry painting to make our own props. Uh, we mold, molded our own rubber noses, uh, juggling class, sketch writing classes. Um, every, and then we, during lunch, we'd watch films. We'd have to come back at night again and do more stuff. It was it was intense. I mean, it was it was definite boot camp for the circus. Phenomenal experience and and a dream come true that I got to actually tour with them and everything like that. Uh, the only downside is that it's very specific and that it, it trains you really only to perform in their kind of setting. You know what I mean? It, it's right. It, it's designed to teach you how to be a Ringling Brothers circus clown. So after leaving. Big. It's big. It's very big. big. Yeah. Yes, yes. So my next move after that was to Key West as a street performer, and I was scaring everybody when I got down there because I'm a clown with no makeup on, and I knew oh. how to do a lot of tricks, but I didn't know how to rein in my personality. I'm used to performing in these stadiums. It took a lot of adjustment to get into a normal performing mode after that. So what's touring with the circus like? I know you live in a very small space on the train. It was great because it was really good training for cruise ships. <laughs> Because now the cabins and the cruise ships seems like they're like mansions. Yeah, it was uh, the first. Right, 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 right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, the roomettes that we had were about the size of maybe two phone booths laid down on their side. They were six feet long, three and a half feet wide, and uh, six, maybe eight feet tall. It had like they have in a motorhome where the, the the table folds down and creates a bed. Yeah. And then you put the you hook the table into the wall, and there's a leg that folds down. And that was your world. We had a kitchen with a few uh, refrigerators and a stove that we all shared and uh, some sinks and, and toilets and that kind of stuff. And it was uh, one whole train car with all the clowns. So at 18 years old, man, come on. It was the adventure of the lifetime. It was so much fun. We're rock stars. We're on tour. Every place we went to, it was, oh, they know the circus was in town. And, and they, everybody wanted to hang out with us. And it, it was it was really cool. And to be part of something so big where when you swooped into a town, you know, I really appreciate it now traveling alone as an entertainer. When you're with a, a crew of 200 people and you come into town, I mean, you take over. It, it was amazing. And what did you do in the show? So there was like some specific sets you did. Did you do some juggling in the show? I did, you know, of course, because they want to also uh, use what your talents bring to it. I did some other routines that were not necessarily strictly juggling. I had a, one routine that I enjoyed a lot with a partner and we threw Frisbees to each other from the stands, uh, you know, real fast as we could, kind of like the old plate thing, you know. Yeah, where yeah, you yeah, that's fun, yeah. 
That was cool. And I did a uh, roller bowler routine where I was changing a light bulb. I had a great big street light and uh, my toolbox uh, and a can <laughs> have held the light bulb in it. And then I would change it and I would juggle the two light bulbs and a screwdriver while I was on the roller bowler. And then at the end, the screwdriver would go up and blow up the light pole and all that kind of silliness. But then yeah. one year, my, I think my third year, we had a display of juggling where everybody juggled. And the finale of it was everybody would get down on one knee and uh, call attention to me on, on one side. And it was Biker Bobby Hunt on the other side. And we would both do rings and pull them down over our heads. And that was the big finale of it. I would generally usually do six rings. If I was feeling good, I would do seven rings. And then doing a pull down with a clown wig and a big nose on, that was always <laughs> tricky. One day I was doing it, I had heard that Lottie Brun came to see us. And I knew she was in the audience, so I did, I did the seven for sure. And she came looking for me backstage afterwards. Who was that that did that seven rings? Who was that? And she, found me. And she yelled at me. She said, you have no business with all those fans in that big building like that doing seven rings. They could have blown them right out of your hands. <laughs> Oh, funny. <laughs> but we became friends, and she said that she, she wanted to work with me, and she said, I'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. We're going to practice. And she came, and she sat on a ring crib and watched me for about three hours and, and nice. picked, picked me apart and gave me guidance and encouragement. And it was, yeah, real another blessing. A lovely person. I got to meet her a few times, and she was lovely. And uh, juggling royalty for sure, right, the brother? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're with him for three years. And after three years, you decide that's enough, or do they, or is that the length of the contract? Why do you decide to leave the circus? Yeah, that, that's kind of what happened. It, it's a lot of hard work. It's not a whole lot of money. In the back of my mind, I had already, again, going back to when I was in high school, in my mind, I was, I was kind of set on cruise ships because in the Magic Magazines, Genie Magazine and uh, what was the Lincoln Ring, they used to list where all the magicians were performing. Right. It used to, a lot of them were on cruise ships. And at the same time, the love boat was real popular on TV. So it always stuck in my mind. Hey, that sounds kind of cool. You travel and be on the beach and work on a ship. So this was in my mind. And after about three years of the circus, it's, it's, it's hard work. And I felt I had pretty much learned what I could there. I was open to if I didn't get on cruise ships, maybe going into a circus as a straight juggler. Because here I'm still being a clown. Even though I'm featuring juggling in there, I wanted to get away from the, the clown aspect of it. I wanted to become a juggling, more of an act. And eventually someday my own show with cruise ships. So I'm sending out videotapes to cruise lines and things my, in my third year to get this going. And <laughs> they were putting together this tour of Japan, Railing Brothers was, and I turned it down. This was after the third year to go to Japan for six months because now I'm a big shot. I'm thinking, I don't need this. I'm going on cruise ships. I got my video. I had promo video and I sent it out. And sure enough, nobody calls. So I got no cruise ships coming. And at the end of the season, I, I head down to Key West and I tried street performing. And again, like I was saying before, here I'm a clown with no makeup on, too big of a personality, and I'm scaring people on the pier. And my, my first day at Key West, I lost a dollar. I was so bad. Oh, funny. Right. So it, I did because it was $3 to park your car and a $2 donation you know, for the pier. And uh, I think I made $4, so I technically lost a dollar. And what's the opposite of gathering the crowd? Like, went out and re repelled the crowd. <laughs> well, yeah, my brilliant idea was to gather a crowd. I, I had an unsupported ladder, and my whole thing was, I'm going to climb to the top. And that was it. That's all I had. I had I had tricks, but I had no show. But I learned really, really fast. You know, it was uh, in desperate times. Just, I sat behind the, the trailer all day writing routines. My fall routine, pretty much as it still is now, uh, my opening routine, five minutes or so, was written during that week when I was desperate to figure out how to put a show together. And I uh, started making money by the end. You know, I was there for a week or two. Halfway through the first week, I called back to Ringling and said, can I still come to uh, to Japan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Six months sounds good. 
Yes, yes. I ended up doing that. And that was another great opportunity because while I was there, a spot opened up and they asked me if I would do a juggling act. It was uh, about four minutes long, maybe five minutes, which meant I had to start out in clown makeup, wash it off, do the juggling act, put it back on to finish the show. Oh, that sounds awful. Right, right, right. But again, another golden opportunity. You know, I, I got to perform. They hadn't had a juggler in the circus for years and years and years, a straight juggling act. Right. So that was a kind of another another little badge for me and accomplishment. I got to do it. You know what I mean? I got to perform and, and not be a clown. And those are big shows. Like, what's what's the size of the crowd? What is that? Yeah, at least. Uh, and in Japan, we were in a tent. And at the time, it was the biggest tent in the world that they had constructed for these tours. So, yeah, it was several thousand people that they had in there. It wasn't just me because they they set up. Uh, it was a display of about, I think there were three or four other acts going on at the same time. All around, one in the one of the rings, and then two on the tracks because they were setting up the lions behind us. Right. And I, I've got pictures. The lions are literally five feet behind me. You know, of course, in a cage. But I mean, they're 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 right there. You know what I mean? So you got to block that out of your mind. And of yeah. course, watch for their tails because if the tail goes up, you know what's coming next. <laughs> and it doesn't watch out of the costumes. <laughs> right, right. and it stinks. And it stinks bad. It stinks real bad. But yeah, again, a great opportunity, and I got to go to Japan. And you got to say, well, I mean, obviously, it would have been something to be like a solo centering juggler all by yourself. But they haven't had that since like Lottie Brun or Francis Brun or something like that. I mean, they don't really do that. Correct. So I do think what happened was many years later, this gold unit had morphed into a, a one ring show that toured the States. And I think Dick Franco performed in that. And there might've been a couple other jugglers, but this is a one ring show. So yeah, out of the three rings, they hadn't since maybe even not. I think Dieter Hussle was the last one who did that. Yeah, that's probably when he was still doing the slack rope and the, yeah. Right, right, cups and saucers, yeah. Well, it's a big transition though. It's a big transition from a circus juggler to a comedy juggler. So did yes. anybody at Key West, did you have any street performer uh, mentors who took you under your wing about the comedy aspect or who taught you that part or how did you learn just trial and error? It, it was a lot of trial and error and in Key West I didn't stay too long. I got out of there because I, <laughs> again, I called them up and said could I still come? So I was there a yeah. total of two two weeks. So And I had gone in two weeks from losing a dollar my first day to I think making a r roughly 70 bucks a hat. So I mean yeah. I, I learned really quick and it was yeah, like you're saying trial and error. I still had a long long way to go and then so now I, I did the, the ringling thing Japan got to do the short juggling act again. It was just tricks, so I couldn't work on the talking comedy. I'm a clown again. And then when that was over, I got my first real cruise ship offer. And back then, you needed two 15-minute shows. Yeah. And I still wasn't super confident enough yet with the talking, even though I had done it in Key West. So I did a 15-minute flash act that was just straight circus-style flashy juggling. And then I did a 15-minute kind of comedy bartender thing. I glued on a mustache. And I call it Joe's Bar, and I did Shaker Cups, and I mixed the yeah. drink, and all that kind of stuff. So that was my first and my, my second show. And cruise ships back in that day, people, they think of cruise ships now with the big theaters and the, you know, the large uh, spaces for the audience. When it first started, I know for myself, these were pretty small, loungy kind of situations. They weren't big, big, flashy stages. You could touch the ceiling. The audience sat door level with you. So... Anything that happened below your waist, they couldn't see. So everything had to be from waist height to where you could touch the ceiling. So it had to in that area. That's why I told Dan Menendez, I go, you know, that piano juggling thing, that's never going to play. Because he was doing a lot of cruises. Why are you doing that? They're never going to be able to see it. Right. And so right. that was my great wisdom for Dan. Like, 
Why are you doing that? They're not going to be able to see it. And the same thing, roll a bullet, too. I mean, I did it. I had a little tiny table, but nobody could see what I was doing. You know what I mean? It was pointless, unicycle. You know? Yeah, you might as well just be, you must be moving back and forth, just like, look at me right. on the roll of bullet. <laughs> the first couple rows, you could do that. Then some of the ships, the ceilings got slightly higher, maybe eight, almost 10 feet. And they used to have a shelf that would pull out from underneath the bandstand that created the stage on the dance floor. So two guys would come out after the dance set and they pulled this shelf out and I had always used that because it elevated you a little bit and then they, they could see a little more. But you I got remember that. I wonder if we did the same ships or that was just a standard. It was pretty standard, but we probably most likely did. There weren't that many ships back then either. So we probably did a lot of the same. The same it, went like, it went like from the disco to the showroom. It was sort of the yes. same. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I got real good at doing stuff not on one knee, you know, for five clubs on one knee and, and things like that. So, yeah, it wasn't fun, but you, you did what you had to. And, and the beauty is now, if it ever does come up every once in a while, I get asked to do something at a secondary lounge uh, as a second show, and I've got that experience. So it's, it, it never hurts to have, uh, have those experiences yet. And one thing that people uh, who are performing now didn't experience is back in the day, cruise ships were really they were looking for acts and you could kind of develop your show on the ship. Like you didn't have to come on and just be standing ovation and, and just have your show all together. A lot of people went on the ships and it took them a year or two or whatever to really fully embrace and become a great cruise ship act. Where nowadays it seems like you better be great just getting on the ship, you know? Pretty much. And, and then you still had to be good though. Because, I, you know, my, again, you know, I'm telling all my, my bad stories, but I got fired from my first ship, too, because I had gone there, again, didn't really know what I was doing. It just kind of didn't go great, you know, and the agent called me, sick to shore call on the phone, and he said, what's going on? And I said, oh, the lights are getting on my head. Oh, the light's my butt. You know, get it together. You're, you're getting on the next ship. I've seen the video. I know you can do it. It was a four-week contract, and it was cut short after two weeks. Again, sent home with my tail between my legs. But, you know, these are the experiences where, if everybody would have just said, hey, you're great, then that's as good as I ever would have gotten. But, I mean, these things turned me around and made me work really, really hard so that it didn't happen again. I ended up in Miami going to a place called Bayside, and I spent several years there. And this is where I really learned my comedy, street performing there. It's one of the notoriously toughest pitches there is. The crowds are really, really rough. A lot of times, not, not rough, it's just difficult, not not violent rough, but just difficult crowds and predominantly non-English speaking too. So I'm trying to do work comedy on them. The advantages that I found with it though was that there's a, a band stand area in the center. And at night they had proper stage lighting and I could make friends with the bands and they would plug in my wireless microphone and they would introduce me at the end of their sets. It was like a real show. It wasn't like I had to gather a crowd like street performing. I got to get used to performing in the light, got to be introduced and had a big crowd. So it, it was really, really great for a lot of years. I went there and I, I did that quite a bit and developed a lot of material there. Well, it's important to have that place, right? So where you can kind of make your bones and sort of put the show together. And it's, it's so different now because I think now it's, it's more like everybody knows everything. So I think before you could kind of fail in a vacuum, like nobody would know. Like Yes. yes. Well, that was funny too because um, I would be there and I'd do, then I'd get a, occasional shift gigs here and there. And I didn't get fired, but in the beginning, I didn't get asked back. Then I started getting a little traction. I get a little more dates. And, you know, it got better and better as it, as it got going in my first couple of years. But now, all of a sudden, I was working for uh, uh, Royal Caribbean pretty on and off, semi-regularly. And their offices were kind of behind the port. And you could see them from the back of where I was street performing. So, like, if I had a week or so on the ship, I'd finish. And then if I had two weeks off, I'd go back to Bayside and be passing the hat. 
So I'd literally have passengers get off and they'd say, oh, we saw you last night on the ship. And here's a buck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And then I thought, well, now I'm going to get fun doing this. I better make a choice. And that's when I stopped doing the street performing entirely and just 100% focused on the ships. Well, the ships are funny in that it's not like a specific show, like it has to be a specific cruise show. But there's definitely you definitely work a show that works for the cruises. Yes. And it's and the people who get on there and have been on the ships for a while, and I'm thinking of like Dan Bennett and Randy Cabral and uh, uh, Billy Prudhomme. I think once you get a show, a, sh a show that works on the ship, it's really good job security because it's not something everybody can just come on and do. It's a sort of a specific audience that, I don't know, there's a specific tone to it that a good cruise ship show is different than other types of shows. Do you agree or... Yeah, you 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 got to know your audience for sure when you get there. You, you got to use your head. You know what I mean? It's it's it's, it's a, a family vacation. So I mean, you're you're coming out there, and unless your build is an, an adult entertainer and the audience knows this, you just got to be non-offensive. You got to be likable. You, they pretty much leave you to your own devices. I mean, I'm I'm free to do whatever I want to do in the show, and I can tell if it's working or not working, and I change it up. So that's what I really love about it. You you are your own boss. It's your show. They take it or leave it. And and the people that do run into trouble are are the people that come out and they have they, that they want to be controversial. They think they need to be uh, shocking or whatever, and it's just not the place for that. You know what I mean? It, it, and, and I'm fine with that. I'm just happy to go out and have people have a good time and be entertaining. And and I can find plenty of freedom and leeway in that, and many different ways to do. You know, I don't feel constrained at all. And the yeah. only only difference when I do a show on land is that you just have to remember to not do the ship references. You know? <laughs> right, That's, right, right, right. Yeah. And, and the problem is you've done and, you, and you've done so many ships. All of a sudden, it becomes habit. So you have to put a pause in there. Now you remember you're on land. They're not going to get these jokes. So that, that, that's really the only difference that I find in it. Is yeah, watching out for the ship references and, and just trying to, to keep it uh, likable. Like you can blow it off the show. Oh, right? easily, easily. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we can we just, can come up with stories about guys who have uh, had bad decision making outside the show that cost them their their contracts. It goes on and on. Well, and that's part of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a people socializing environment and job. You know what I mean? Some guys take one route and they just decide to hide in their cabins all the time. Because they know they'll get done, and if you can't be gracious, I always tell everybody I never take it for granted. It's the, the best job in the world to be able to not only perform and make people happy, but then to hear all week long people come up to you and say what a great job they thought you did. Yeah, I don't understand that. I don't understand the people hiding in their cabin. Yeah, yeah. Like, they don't want to, like, oh, God, if I have to talk to another passenger or, like, come on, get over yourself a Exactly, bit. exactly. And, I, and sure, you do have to get your head around it because sometimes, you know, it, it gives you a, an example of what you figure real stars really must go through if you're a real celebrity and you literally can't go outside of your house. We see a small microcosm of what that's like. But I mean, it's part of the deal. You know, you, you go along with it. And I really think that if, if your normal everyday people that work regular jobs could hear all day long, hey, great job, great job, great job, the world would be a much happier place. You know, so yeah, I, I, for me, I'm not like I'm looking for people to puff me up and be like, oh, no, hey, no. great. Yes. But walking around and people saying, I really enjoyed what you did. It really made me laugh. And it was a lot of fun for me and my family. I, that's, that's the thing I need to avoid or hide from. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's when they're not doing it, then you get worried. I mean, can you get it old or can you get cornered by somebody who you're like, oh God, no. You know, so how'd you get started? And, oh, yeah. you know, well, you know yeah. the, the same story over and over again, but uh, yeah. small price to pay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know what I mean? It comes with the territory. So where are some of the, the cruises you've been to and what are some of the stories that stand out? 
Give us some story adventures from cruises. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so when you told me we're going to ask some cruise ship stories, I'll tell you my, my very favorite one is uh, back in the old days on the ships, we, we I, I guess you could still do fire now if you go through, jump through hoops. Uh, you meet with the safety officer and if it's approved. Yeah. But many years ago, I ditched the fire thing because it just got to be too much of a hassle traveling yeah. with torches and finding fuel when you got to the, the islands. And anyway, in the old days, I did used to do fire on the Rollabola. And it was a smaller ship. And one of the passengers got very upset by this. And this was after the show. And he said, people on this ship are insane for letting this juggler juggle this fire. He's going to, one of the embers will get up in the ceiling and it's going to burn this whole ship down and it's not safe. you got to stop them from doing this. And mm. this was first to the cruise director. And the cruise director said, well, it's what he was hired for. That's, you know, he's professional and he's done this many times. Oh, this is not good. And the passenger goes to the staff captain of the ship and tells him the whole same thing. And the staff captain says, I'm sorry, this, this is, you know, and the guy goes to the captain of the ship. He's going to kill all of us. You can't have him juggling fire on a ship. What's the matter with you people? You have to have him fired. The captain very calmly looked at him and he said, but it's his finale. (laughs) (laughs) So in the old days, they had our backs. Nowadays, uh, and of course, it is a safety issue, and it does make perfect sense. I mean, why, even if it is uh, watched by security and deemed safe and everything like that, if it is putting stress in people's minds, why why even bother, you know? And not surprisingly, there are some people in our profession who are flakier than others. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> and some people should not be doing fire on the ship. There you go. And sometimes they don't take the right precautions. And you're exactly. like, yeah, this is crazy. Yes. yes. This is crazy. So It should not know. be done. Other craziness things are more uh, probably my personal thing. I went through a quite a long period where I used to uh, like to get off in ports and I would push it to the very last minute to get on board. I oh. always took it like an honor to be the last one on board because I wanted to get the most Scary. out of that day. Yeah. And uh, it would drive my wife crazy. And uh, what, what, a couple of years ago, I was on a Holland America ship, and I was in Bar Harbor, Maine, and I was waiting for the last tender. Uh, there was a great big long line. So I knew I, I could see the line, and I was there. I knew it was past all aboard time, but I knew that till that line and they filled up all the tenders, I was good. But on board the ship, for whatever reason, they just saw I wasn't there, and it was past time. So they called her at home and wanted to know where I was. Oh. So she called me in an absolute panic. You know, what's going on? She's terrified what happened and everything. And I'm sitting right there watching the line to get on board. So now I always have to check in and say, yes, it's an hour before I'm on board. I'm here. It's all good. No more, uh, you know, because, of course, if you miss the ship and you have a show that night or the next day and you can't get to the next floor, it's your job. Yeah. And that's a scary drive. I've been on that drive where you're like, you're in the you're in the taxi. You think you have enough time. And all of a sudden yeah. something comes up and you, you're seeing the ship. Yep. It's it's there. You're getting the time is counting down. You're thinking, boy, I don't want that ship to sail away without me. Oh, oh. and that's a, and I've talked to many entertainers. I don't know if you have the same thing, but it's a very common recurring dream. Not necessarily yeah. just being a ship, but being late for anything. They're introducing me. I can't get my props together on stage. Um, I'm, I'm miss, late for a flight. I'm late for the ship. I'm late. It's just a late thing. And uh, look, I shouldn't bring it up because I haven't had one in quite a while. But I found it's very common in show business. The, the late dream. And there are logistic things that, that sometimes, you know, you have to catch planes and you're in the, the yeah, airport yeah. and you have to find your contact and he's not there and you got to call this. Cruises can be, because you go to some wild places to pick up those ships. Yeah. And they always, you know, 90% of, uh, 50% of the time they tell you there'll be somebody there waiting with your name on a sign and they're not there. Yeah. And then a lot of times you don't speak the language and you don't have a contact phone number and you're supposed to go to a hotel or a ship and you don't know where it is. So 90% of that job is trying to figure all that stuff out. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you're like in Ecuador or Colombia, and you're like, yeah. no one's yeah. there to meet you, and you're thinking, I'm screwed. But then you realize, I'm a capable person with, who can adapt, and that's what I'm going to do. That's a lot of people, cruises are not for them, man. There's a lot of, of that kind of thing, that if you're not a together person with your passports and right. travel and right. uh, staying on time and making sure you're where you're supposed to be, you can run into a lot of trouble. For sure. It's a definite mindset and it's a certain way that you have to, it's a lifestyle that you have to accept, but I mean, there's a lot of benefits to it also if you, if you can get your head around it. And if you're bad at decision-making, like yeah. I'm in Jamaica and this guy wants to sell me some pot to bring back on the ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sure is the quickest way to get fired. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was in Colombia one time and I'm in this cab and the guy is so, so trying to sell me some kind of drugs, right? And finally he goes, just take back some seeds, <laughs> right? Take back some, some marijuana seeds with you. I have these great marijuana seeds. And I'm like, no. And he goes, you're very smart. Three seeds, three years. So he's trying to set me up to then turn me over to the police. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I know. So, yeah. But if he said no, no, then you're, yeah, he's happy to sell them to you. But yeah. yeah. But then, of course, there's people who are not good with the personal relationships on the ship or they have drinking issues. You know, there's, there's issues you have to, to, to consider in that kind of closed yes. environment that whether cruises are right for you. And it's, it's a very uh, easy thing to get caught up into. Not so much anymore, because especially since uh, the pandemic, things have changed on board in the aspect of now we're, we've always had like a uh, passenger status, but now there's a definite line where we're not allowed in crew areas 90% of the time, other than to get to the stage or our shows, which means no crew bar, no fraternizing right. with the crew or with the guests. So if you were right. a single guy out there, by contract, we're not allowed to be in any passenger cabin or a passenger in our cabin. By the same token, we're not allowed in a crew cabin or anyone from the crew allowed in our cabin. So if you were trying to meet anybody, <laughs> you're, you're out of luck. Yeah. And you got to have your priorities because it's a job and your contract's on stake. And you have to know when to sort of toe the line and, and uh, understand that your behavior outside the, sh the, sh the show is as important as, you know, how you dress. And that, that you exactly. show up and you're, and you're polite to the passengers because the comment cards are so important. Right. Like if, right. I was if just you're rude to one passenger... I, and that, and that passenger complains. They'll hear about it. They'll hear about it. And that could be it. One one bad complaint could could outweigh a lot of good shows. And I'll, I'll be, you know, I'm friends with, uh, we have uh, groups on Facebook that are predominantly entertainers and things. And people come up and talk about these stories and situations they've gotten themselves into. And it just blows my mind. I'm just like, well, why did you do that then? Why did you say that? Why? You know, and and they, they're acting like they're the victims. And it's like, I've, been, I've had a career here for 35 years. I've never had any problems. How, how are you finding all these situations and these problems? And it's, and it's not your fault. You know, I, I just don't get it. Well, those people tend to find problems wherever they go. There you go. There you go. Yes. It's, so let's talk about what's required on the ships. Like how much time do you find yourself doing now? Okay, so um, like I said before, when I first started, it used to be two different 15-minute shows. Then it was, for a while, uh, one of, we were doing uh, split shows, and we would do 30 minutes and then a 15-minute show. And then about 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of them decided to make us a whole night, no split shows. So yeah. meaning split shows, they'd have, I would open for a comedian, so I would do 20 or 30 minutes, then he would do 20 or 30 minutes, then we would do that again later in the cruise. Now it's you, yourself, 45 minutes straight, you're the whole night, which is, it took a while to get used to because it's a lot of pressure. I mean, if it's not happening, 
that night's your responsibility. And if they're not entertained, it's not like there's another act that's going to come and save it, you know. So that, that was uh, terrifying at first. So a full 45, and then they'd have you do the 45, and then an additional 15 minutes, say, on a farewell show. So that, that was an hour's worth of material. Now the trend has been, if this started a, a few years before the pandemic, several of the lines had started asking for two different 45-minute shows. That's um, a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. I had always fought it, and I just avoided those lines for a while. And then one of my main lines came back to me and said, hey, if you can do two 45s, we can offer you a lot more work. And I said, okay, sure. And I had never done it before, and I didn't know what I was going to do. But I put it together. I had the extra props, and I carried the stuff around with me with an idea of what I would do. And for yeah. a year, year and a half, I never got called on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm carrying all these suitcases and all this stuff and everything, and not, nobody ever said anything. So, okay. And then sure enough, one day I got on that ship and there it was on the schedule. I was like, okay, this is it. And I did it, and it went really well. And now I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And um, actually working on even more now. So now I, I do two full 45-minute shows. There are exceptions. Some other cruise lines, you could go another route. There's a lot of jugglers that will take a long-term contract and be part of a production show. And then you're doing circus-style 15 minutes, 10-minute acts, things like that. Uh, but that's a whole different thing that I, I really don't know much about. But for what I do as a, a featured guest entertainer, headliner, whatever they call it, these days, most of them are asking for two full 45-minute shows, two different 45 minutes, yeah. People don't realize, I mean, being a juggler, that's a lot of props. <laughs> so you better be able to milk some of those uh, props. Yes, for... yes. But, but you strike me as a guy who's always practicing, always adding new things. Like, I know you added that, that thing recently with the, uh, the, pool, the pool triangle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I, I watch you. I, you know, I'm about seeing what's going on, and you're always putting out new stuff. And you seem to stay in really good shape, which Thanks. is important. I'm really, really focused on that because as I'm getting, you know, I've been around quite a while and uh, yeah. now my whole, everything has shifted. I had, I've had my years of partying. I've had my years of uh, burning the candle at both ends. And now I'm just focused on uh, putting out a good show all the time. I'm there to work and, and have as long a career as I possibly can because I, I truly do love it. And I think that the only thing that'll really set me back is, is health or injury. So I'm really focused on exercise and diet and, of course, practicing. I got a real, real strict regimen now. I get up every morning, 4.30 in the morning, and I practice from 6 a.m. till 9 a.m. because that's when the wow. theater is available. And then yeah. I go from there and I do a couple hours in the gym. And then I uh, have lunch and then I go back to bed and I sleep through the afternoon. And uh, it, it, it's working really well for me. And, again, yes, always working on new stuff, trying to keep it interesting. And trying to keep the skill level up there. You know what I mean? It's I want it to be entertaining, but I also want to live with myself and know that I'm doing uh, as, as difficult of things as I possibly can pull off, you know. You're a married man, right? Uh, yeah. You've been married for quite a while. How do you handle the separations? I mean, because you obviously have to be away quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, nothing is ideal. And yeah. what's really fortunate is that my wife is also in the cruise business. Uh, she's more on the production side of things. The reason I'm home right now to be able to do this podcast with you is that she's over in Europe. Uh, she's splitting time between two of the newest uh, MCL uh, ships she's installing uh, shows on there and I'm staying home to watch our dog. So I've locked up three weeks to stay home and I'm really loving just sitting still for a change. It's, it's awesome. But uh, cool. her, her being in the business, I mean, she gets it. You know what I mean? Of course, nothing's ideal and we wish we could be together yeah. all the time, but you know, we make the most of it when we are together. And when you're off the ships, do you take other jobs? I know you have quite a busy cruise schedule. Do you other do you other jobs come up, or you just pr primarily do cruises now? You know, I have um, I, I've found over the years that it just seems that one-off gigs just seem to be so much uh, work and preparation to, to put it all together. Whereas with the ship, 
They just call you, you go, I know the deal. I know when I get there, I got my lights, the sound, everything's good to go. And it's done here. You got our range. Oh, am I going to have a PA system? Oh, it's going to be here. And it's six, <laughs> six months to work out the contract. There were some local dates I was doing here for a while also. But at the end of the day, when I'm home, if my wife Marguerite's home too, I want to be home with her. Yeah. Nothing worse than to be home all day. And then at seven, six o'clock at night, say, oh, I got to go do a show. You know, and break up the day like that. So these days, I'm just enjoying when I'm home. I just want to be home. I think you said the key thing about the cruises. You know the deal. Yes. Like the cruises are their own deal. And once you're on them and know it, and and you go, oh yeah, they got the sound guy. They got the nice stage. I know, you know, what the situation's like. I know the crowd. I think you get a nice comfort zone on the cruises, and they're steady. Like I look at your schedule. I think that's a nice schedule because you have you have your time off. You have your three weeks here or whatever. So you have you built in time off, but that's already you're booking, you know, half of 2024 already. So you know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And then once that starts to fill up, then you can say, okay, I'll take these this week off or that week off. Once you have a good framework, you know, you have it. So, but uh, yeah, it, it's very comforting. You know what I mean? To, to, and like you had said earlier too, there's a lot to be said for having done it many times and and having experience. I mean, they value your experience. They know when they put you out there. But at the end of the night, it's going to be a successful night because you have done it and you you know what you're doing. Whereas opposed to when they take a chance with somebody, no, they don't know what's going to happen. I had a friend describe it a long time ago. It's almost akin to uh, pilots with their with their mileage. You know, you have to fly so many hours in order to be uh, qualified. And this is same like the Outliers book too. You're ten thousand hours or whatever. But same thing on stage. You know what I mean? We there's quite a few of us that have just so many years put into it. We've run into almost every situation, so inevitably we'll figure out a graceful way out of it or a way to make it entertaining. Yeah, there's guys out there, you're like the unsung heroes, because I always appreciate the jugglers who represent juggling in a good way. So someone can go see a show on a cruise ship and go, wow, we really like the juggler. The juggler was super entertaining and funny. And for, for that little period of time, juggling has been represented in a good light. And there's guys, like I say, like you and, and Billy Prudhomme and Randy and Danny... Bennett out there doing a super good job and really, really representing juggling to in one of the few venues now that really supports juggling. So, you know, I'm big on the cruise ship jugglers. Yes. Yes. And there's a lot of pride in that too. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and to me, and I know it's meant as a compliment, but it's always so frustrating when you hear passengers come up to you and they tell you how much they, they like your show, but they say it in a surprising way. Like, you know, or, or they literally just say, oh, I really didn't think I'd like you or I didn't want to come because I don't like juggling, but I like your show. You know, okay. So it, it's a compliment, but at the same time, I'm like, well, why don't you like it? You know I mean? It's so, so frustrating. But I get it, too. I think I remember many years ago, one of the juggling magazines, I think it was Dick Franco had said in an interview something about you, that you shouldn't be practicing in public because they should only see the finished product. Oh, and I, I don't know about that, but well, uh, I, get, I get what he's saying. I think it's the difference between juggling when you just think, okay, I'm going to watch someone juggle, which, which sounds pretty hideous. But when it's put together in an act and you have character and variety and, and people realize, oh, juggling is more than just a guy doing three balls. It, it can be a great uh, entertainment, but there's some people spoiling it for us, uh, Jeff. For sure. Well, I mean, I would spoil it for anybody too if they came and just saw me practice for three hours, you know, because they look at it. Well, we're also spoiling it by putting on shows that don't, aren't entertaining juggling. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, you got to kind of get your, your ego out of the way too, and really look at it objectively from an audience's point of view. I don't know who said it, but I was like that saying is do with the shows that you would like to go see. Yeah. Well, you got to do the show that you'd be wanting to see as far as, you know, presenting something that you like, but at the same time, you, you have to always put it through the prism of 
what are they going to like? Right, right, exactly. Uh, are they going to want to watch me do a five-minute three-ball routine with all my variations? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. There's a story I love from one of W.C. Fields' biographies. And when he was, you know, before he did his comedy movies, when he was touring the world as a juggler, he had worked for, for a couple of years, I guess it was, on balancing a cane on his and kicking a hat from his foot up onto the cane. And he's, he's got it in the show now. And I don't know if it was the first night he tried it, but he's having a lot of difficulty with it. And after five or six tries, out of frustration, he, he swats at the hat and bats it, and a flood goes up into the flies on the stage. And it gets stuck in the rigging up there. It got a huge laugh. And then later in the show, it fell down again, just randomly. And that got a huge <laughs> laugh. So right. what's he do? He forgets about the trick. And then after that, he hires a kid to stay up there for the whole act to catch the hat when he hits it up there. And then he found out the perfect place for him to drop it down. And I, I want to say that he had him drop it and try and catch it on his head. For the, the th But anyway, the, the point is, is that he saw the value in the laughs rather than this trick that he worked for two years on. That's funny because there's that Francis Brunn story where uh, Francis Brunn had a little dog, like a little poodle or something. And he would uh, learn to fetch the tennis ball. So uh, Francis Brunn's like performing. I don't know if this is true or not. And then one day the, the dog gets loose, runs out on stage and grabs the, the tennis ball off his foot and <laughs> runs back off. And the audience goes crazy, right? They just think it's the funniest, best thing ever. And of course, Francis Brunn's like, never let that dog come out again. Or <laughs> <laughs> we'd be like, make sure yes. the dog comes out every time. Yes, oh, that's hysterical. It's funny, yeah, complete opposites. <laughs> <laughs> also, but you have the thing too that because uh, you've done stuff outside the the ship, that gives you legitimacy when you come out because you've done uh, late night with David Letterman and America's Got Talent. So I imagine you use those as credits. Yes. you know, on the ship. Yes, although now Letterman since he's off the air, I'm starting to worry yeah. about eventually that the, if it's going to be time to retire that. My moment on, on AGT was also so very brief that although I was on it, it's nothing really to brag about, but I can say I was there. Both of them were from this gimmick that I used to perform. I don't even do it in the show anymore, but I used to have a whole suit made out of ping pong paddles. Mm, I remember that, yeah. On your shoulders and on your yeah. yeah. So I, I did that on Letterman, and then uh, yeah, they called me for that for AGT, and the nice thing about them calling me was I was able to bypass the whole audition yeah. process. You know what I mean? I just write, write my very first time I did it was a live taping, uh, with Howie Sharer and Pierre Morgan, my mistake was they specifically wanted that routine. So yeah. my thinking was, well, so I'll do that second because that'll guarantee ah. I get a first spot in the second. And that didn't seem to sit too well with them. So they never showed the first spot that went great. And they showed a little clip. They just wanted to show a shot of me with the pink pop pedal suit on, really. And had they just told me that, I would have been fine with it. <laughs> well, that's the lesson you learn in that show is they want what they want. Like, they don't really care what you want that much. Yeah, and, and it's such a different <laughs> different mindset from here. Now, uh, my whole life is figuring out how to stretch all this stuff out into two 45-minute shows to condense things down to 60 seconds now. It's just it's impossible. It's, it's hard. I was talking to a, a person I work with, a protege, about, you know, back in the day, it was all about trying to get on Carson or some show where you could do your six minutes or your eight minutes. And uh, now he's thinking, what about this late show with, with James Corden where you get to a bar trick or... You know, it's become like a meal or no meal, yeah. or is that something, or, or or you're being judged. Yeah, and that's what it was on Letterman. It was, a, it was a, this, but it, it, is this anything? So, I mean, I was literally, yeah, 15 seconds. And I have a theory that all these, these shows, I mean, sure, it's getting variety on TV and everything. But to me, it, it's feeling like it's turning the audiences into judges also. When you come out, they're not there to be entertained now because they've watched so many of these shows. All they're doing in their mind is picking you apart while you're on stage. Right. 
I bet you they'd, they'd love to go to like a gong show format, like to give the audience a chance to buzz you off. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's next, I guess, you know. Well, recently so. I started complimenting the kids if they sit still for 45 minutes of entertainment and pointing out the fact that, you know, everything they see now is 10 seconds on TikTok and, uh, you know, encouraging, you know, parents and grandparents to take their kids and see live entertainment before it dies. And it's getting tremendous response, the fact that I'm bringing that up and acknowledging it. And have you seen the differences in the audience, just their attention spans and things like that? The biggest difference I'm seeing lately is that for some reason, people just feel like they can have conversations with you during the show. They just, oh. <laughs> they just, yeah, they just start talking to you randomly, like not even just from the first few rows, which is in right. the, the first few rows, it's frustrating because the rest of the audience doesn't hear it. So if you respond yeah. in a in any kind of way, they don't know what it is that set you off because they didn't hear what the person said. But they're just literally having conversations with you while you're working. And it's, it's mind-numbing. And I had a comedian explain it to me. His theory was that because majority of comedians now don't want to blow their real material on social media, that they post a lot of videos of themselves doing crowd work. And in the audience's minds, they're starting to think that that's what a comedy show is now, is to go there and talk to the entertainers. Yeah, my theory is it's not enough about them anymore, right? right? Like it's not, it's, people are so much now about them, about themselves. Like, like I could be on TV and I can make yeah. a video and I can, like they don't really respect the entertainer's role anymore. Yeah. And I think watching somebody and giving up that attention for that amount of time and not have it focused back on them. Exactly, you got it. It's hard for people nowadays. Like, oh, it's not about me. <laughs> You nailed it. And I've, I've noticed, especially during this last spring break, too, when you get gangs of, of, of uh, high school age, young college age oh, kids that would come with out, outfits on and, and trying to call attention to themselves during your yeah. show. And of course, there's 10 of them. So they're they're making each other laugh and you can't win in a battle like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> well, I appreciate you fighting the good fight out there, Jeff. I'll never give up. Tabasia. <laughs> Tabasia. <laughs> Never give up, never give up, never surrender. Never surrender. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time. We've come to the end of our, our time together here. And uh, I'm sure there's lots more stories, lots more adventures still to be had. Absolutely. Lots more, lots yeah. more ports of call to go to. So uh, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of adventure and excitement coming up. And especially uh, your schedule looks great for the end of this year and for next year. And I'm sure there's the sky's the limit for Jeff Tavasia. Very busy, yes, and I don't see any end in sight. I'm going to keep going until my arms fall off. That's my plan anyway. Well, it's like I told you in our conversation on Facebook, I regret always retiring. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I've been retiring for the last, you know, since I was 50 or something, and I keep thinking, why do I keep stopping it? Just keep going, man. Just keep going, Jeff, as long as you can. Keep them flying. Keep them laughing. And keep going out there and doing your thing. Thanks so much. And thanks, man. Thanks for being on a guest here on Drop Everything. And nice finally connecting with you. And all the best to Jeff, to Veja. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right, man. Cool. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 121 with Jeff Tavaja. Thanks, Jeff. Good luck on your travels on the high seas. Now, folks, before you go... Don't forget to check out our sponsor, the IJA. I think you know that stands for International Jugglers Association. And you know where to find them, juggle.org. What will you find when you get there? A great group of jugglers, yearly festivals, and so much more. Go to juggle.org, find out about the IJA today. Now, go out in the world and drop everything, except when you're juggling.